Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the United States without a functioning House of Representatives as jockeying gets underway to replace Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, while the temporary Speaker, Patrick McHenry, displays partisan pettiness in his first act to kick Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer out of their offices in the Capitol. The University Distinguished Professor of Government and founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, and campaigns and elections. And he's the author of Rivals for Power, Presidential Congressional Relations, and most recently, Campaigns and Elections American Style. Then we'll examine the push to build AI-driven robotic weapons to confront China in a war that our hawks see as inevitable. Joining us is William Hartung, a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His books include Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, and we'll discuss his article at Tom Dispatch, AI Goes to War. Will the Pentagon's techno-fantasies pave the way for war with China? Then finally, we investigate how lessons from the past can help us save our future on a planet facing a sixth extinction. Joining us is Michael Mann, the Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He has received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award, selection by Scientific America as one of the 50 leading visionaries in science and technology, and additionally, he contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2020, he was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. He is the author of numerous books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Our Planet Back. And his latest book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of numerous books and more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, and campaigns and elections, and is the author of Rivals for Power, Presidential Congressional Relations, and his most recent books is Campaigns and Elections, American Style. Welcome to Background Briefing. James Thurber. It's good to be here. So what do you make of the first moves after the Speaker lost his, uh, McCarthy lost his seat? The first thing that seems to be happening now is some sort of petty vengeance, beating up the Democrats, this successor that appointed as a sort of pro tem speaker, temporary speaker. Uh, he's already booted Nancy Pelosi out of her office in the, on the Capitol and Staney Hoyer, because Nancy Pelosi's in San Francisco for Dianne Feinstein's funeral, so she can't even move the stuff out of her office. It's not exactly off to an auspicious start, this uh, post-McCarthy Republican House. Well, let's put it in the context of in 1910, uh, when Joe Cannon uh, was uh, put up to a similar situation to vacate his position as speaker he beat the opposition and he and he went on to punish the people who voted against him taking offices away from them uh and eventually uh has an entire uh house office building named after him i don't think mccarthy's going to have a building named after him 
and it's exceedingly petty for him. I think he did it through the Speaker Pro Tem to uh, go after Pelosi's uh, small little office close to the floor of the House of Representatives and Steny Hoyer's house. I mean, it's really quite petty. They don't have a plan for the next step other than they're going to spend a week trying to heal things and bring people together. Uh, and it, it has a major impact on funding the nation. We only have 43 days uh, until we have another possible shutdown. Uh, how long will it take? Well, I think there's going to be a battle uh, that's going to take quite a few days on, on the votes to get enough votes uh, for the next speaker because it only takes uh, five people to object and then you don't uh, elect a speaker. Uh, the whole House of Representatives is being driven by far-right, really not even MAGA people, but far-right people that are really interested in their own egos like Matt Getz. Uh, they love him in his district and in the panhandle of Florida, he won by 36 points in the last election, but he's undermining the capacity to govern. He's undermining our democracy and he's scaring people like Zelensky and Ukraine and our NATO allies right now, because we look like a third world nation that can't get things together. So what do you make then of the pro-Putin caucus in the House? Nobody seems to be asking the question, why is it that their top priority, uh, the threat of shutting down the government, was to cut aid to Ukraine, which is McCarthy had to strip it out and basically break a deal that he'd made with the Democrats. Why is cutting aid to Ukraine the top priority of these uh, far-right Freedom Caucus people, along with uh, Rand Paul and uh, J.D. Vance and a couple of other senators? Do, do you have any idea of why it's so important to them to cut it's like aid? The Amer- it's like the America First movement in World War II, they want to be isolationists. Uh, they feel that we're spending too much of our our capital uh, on this war. It's unimportant. It's a war in Europe, not a war here. It sounds exactly like pre-World War II. Uh, <clears throat> and I think they're naive. I think there's an overwhelming majority of Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate that, would, that will fund this. They wouldn't even bring the bill to fund it to the floor. There's going to be a major issue coming up and probably one that will be asked of the people running uh, for the speakership like Scalise and and others. I I, uh, don't know if they know much about history uh, and know much about what the consequences of this will be in terms of the United States being trusted throughout the world with our allies and uh, in standing up to Iran, North Korea, Russia, and China. I don't think they care. They're just blowing things up at this point. Well, but they're also following Donald Trump's uh, cues, aren't they? The Freedom Caucus, and particularly Jim Jordan, who's now thrown his hat in the ring to be the next speaker. He's definitely tight with Trump. And there's no question about Trump seems to admire Putin more than any other world leader and uh, has some peculiar relationship with him. So you don't see that this is all benefiting Putin? Well, I think it will benefit Putin if we don't turn around and start governing and pass the uh, appropriations to help Ukraine and to stand up for our allies around the world. Uh, Jim Jordan should be careful because my Kevin didn't get any support from the president during this whole thing. Uh, He, in fact, said, I think a day and a half, or maybe even yesterday, they should stop fighting with the Democrats and get things done. I mean, Trump is really about himself. We know that. Uh, He doesn't have a clear core philosophy, in my opinion, about foreign policy. He admires... um, he admires dictators, oligarchs, and certainly Putin is that. Uh, I don't know why anybody follows him on that issue. Um, philosophically, they may believe in maybe they're isolationists, and that's, that's different, but they seem to be following his lead on this, which seems to be 
against the entire Republican Party. It's hurting the Republican Party. I mean, even the Freedom, Freedom Caucus, which is about 48 people now of the various ideological caucuses in the House of Representatives, the Republican side, even the Freedom Caucus, many of them don't agree with this. And certainly the Republican Study Committee doesn't, the Republican Governance Committee doesn't. It's just really the, the MAGA squad, the extreme people on the right that are going along with this. But at the moment, with little more than 40 days to go before the government runs out of money, they're arguing over office space. And I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, how long is it going to take before they say, some of them say, oh, we'll have a new speaker by Wednesday. That seems highly unlikely. When do you think they, that they'll have a new speaker? And, and again, as of now, you've got Scalise and Jim Jordan have thrown their hats in the ring. I'm not sure it will and whether others will, I assume they will, it's not going to get done by Wednesday, is it? It won't get done by Wednesday. It will take many votes. And remember, they need they they can only lose five votes if you're running, and you need 218. And um, Jim Jordan is popular with people on the on the far right. I mean, he, he was an anathema for a while when he first came in, but he's now... Uh, supported by a lot of people, and Scalise is liked by a lot of people, but he's maybe too moderate, believe it or not, even though it's very conservative for a bunch of people. So this will go along, go on for a long time, and it's really damaging our democracy. It's damaging how we look in the world. It's damaging uh, doing the basics of the first uh, article of the Constitution, and that is power of the purse power of the purse is that you have to authorize and appropriate money for the government. If you can't do that, you're not doing the basic responsibilities of the institution. And uh, it's, it's agonizing to see it. It's, it's really strange to hear Matt Gates say, well, he wants us to pass, pardon me, he wants Congress to pass the appropriation bills using the regular order, which means not putting them in CRs, continuing resolutions. And he wants them to come up one by one and debate them. He sounds like a moderate Democrat or Republican. That have been, they've been wanting to do that for a long time. Um, he's the one who got in the way of that happening. Um, he wants to balance the budget, not immediately. He wants to reduce debt and deficit. Everybody wants to do that, but you can do it by raising taxes as well as cutting but he comes up with no ideas for that. He, he, you know, three years ago, Matt Gates wanted to be a, a TV commentator, a, a talking head on television. They changed his mind. Now it's all about him running, running for the governorship in Florida, wanting to bring in lots of money and him on television um, talking about how awful McCarthy is and others who compromise and work with the Democrats. Now, in order for this democracy to work, you need to reach out, compromise and work together. There's no other way. Ryan knew this, former speaker. He passed 38 bills with the help of Democrats and then he was fired. Um, and whoever the next speaker is, they have to compromise. They do not have the Senate. They do not have the the White House. They have to compromise eventually, and uh, they don't seem to understand that, that uh, they'll have to do this eventually. But James Thurber, Matt the Brat Gates, he dodged a bullet with charges of sex with an underage girl and, and sex trafficking because he, he traveled interstate with her. Apparently, the, she was not the best witness. That was why the prosecutors dropped the case, not because they didn't think they had a case. Do you think that the, that because they're so mad, the Republicans are so mad at Matt Gates, that they might refer his that case to the Ethics Committee in revenge? It it has been referred to the Ethics Committee, and that's one of the reasons uh, <clears throat> that uh, he hate he hated McCarthy because McCarthy didn't stand up for him after he took a seventeen year old across a woman across the border to have sex and maybe she was even younger than that we don't know he was never prosecuted on it but there but that was sent to the ethics committee and it seems to be dead at this point but one of the reasons he went after mccarthy was not 
in my opinion, because of philosophy. It was because he hated him because he didn't stand up for him when this happened. Hmm. So then just to wrap up here in the last couple of minutes, Scalise as a candidate, he has problems. He's not, <laughs> I don't see him as being particularly moderate in any sense, but compared to, I guess, the MAGA people and the way the Republican Party is, is heading under Trump, he could appear to be somewhat reasonable, but he, he has leukemia, I believe. So would that impact his uh, choice, do you think? He has, he's being treated for a blood uh, cancer, indeed, and people are worried about whether he, he'll be up to it. I don't know. I don't have any inside information for it, but I do know that Steve Scalise has been calling people, trying to line up votes for him, as has uh, Jim Jordan has been doing the same thing. Now, Jordan is, now both of them are conservative. J Jordan is really way conservative until he recently did a deal with McCarthy, but, but he's respected by the far right more than Scalise. Scalise is, is, is well-liked um, by the moderate uh, Republican caucuses, and I think he's trusted by the Democrats, but but um, he's not he's not a moderate in terms of policies. Um, I think he's going to go for it, and I think there's going to be a question about his health, but that doesn't mean that Jim Gordon, Jordan gets all those votes. And what about an alternative compromise candidate, even McHenry, who's been deputized as the interim? speaker. Well, McHenry claims he's not interested. I think if you talk to any any elected public official in the House of Representatives and the Republican Party, if they're close to, to the leadership the way he is, it, that if, if he had a shot at it, he'd go for it. And maybe there would be a deadlock between uh, Jordan and Scalise and they'd go to someone like him or uh, others. I won't start listing them. There's a whole bunch of them. Even people have mentioned uh, that maybe they should have um, <clears throat> Trump as the speaker, which is allowed, uh, but it's a crazy idea, and I don't think there's enough votes for that. Well, I don't see it. there's enough votes for, uh, well, I don't know about Scalise, but I can't imagine there'd be enough votes for Jim Jordan, right? There's, the Democrats would vote against him en masse, and it only takes four or five disaffected Republicans, right? It takes five, and if five. you know, there's a bunch of moderates that would not like that. So, so right. this is like this is like Italy or something with multi coalitions and right. and you know over six, 60 governments since World War II, or it's like it's like other coalition governments throughout the world where it's very unstable, right. and I don't a quick way out of it. But I do see a major impact of this to the Republican Party as a whole, but also to America. We have to pass the budgets on time. If you want to, if you want to cut back on spending, you still have to pass the budget. If you want to increase revenues, you have to pass the budget. They've got, they've got to do their their work. And you know, Matt Gates said, "Well, they were we were gone for six weeks on quote vacation, and nothing got done." Well. Yeah, it looks bad, but the appropriation subcommittees were working during that period, and the staff were working, and members were working, and it's a matter of the speaker having uh, enough clout, McCarthy then, to bring, bring those bills to the floor and get them passed without a lot of crazy amendments on them that the far right wants. So it wasn't a matter of not working. It was a matter of not being able to follow the leadership to get something done. Well, that's going to be the case for the next few weeks. If it took 15 votes to get McCarthy, and my God knows how many votes and how many candidates and how much more chaos we'll have. I thank you for joining us, uh, James Thurber. Thank you. I think we're going to have a lot of agony and angst and anomie and anger over the next couple of weeks, uh, and I hope that we can, we can, they can select a leader that has people that follow him, but I don't see it. Thank you. 
Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with James Thurber, the University Distinguished Professor of Government and the founder and former director of the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University. He's the author of numerous books, more than 80 articles and chapters on Congress, interest groups and lobbying, and campaigns and elections, and is the author of Rivals for Power, Presidential and Congressional Relations. And his most recent book is Campaigns and Elections, American Style. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the push to build AI-driven robotic weapons to confront China in a war that our hawks see as inevitable. A verified freestyle, lyrics of fury. My third eye make me shine like jury. You're just a renter, rapper, your rhymes are minimate. I'll be here when it fade and watch it flip like a renegade. I can't wait to break and eliminate on every trade of a snake, so stay awake and follow and follow because the tempo's a trail, the stage is a cage, the mic is a third rail. I'm Rock Kim. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Hartung, who's a senior researcher at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His books include Profits of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, and he has an article at Tom Dispatch, AI Goes to War, Will the Pentagon's Techno-Fantasies Pave the Way for War with China? Welcome to Background Briefing, William Hartung. Yes, thanks for having me. So uh, the possibility of war with China has been, uh, or the inevitability of war with China, was, was expressed by an Air Force general a, a year or so ago. Uh, saying that we'd be at war at war with China by 2025, and that generalist still has his job, as far as I know. So, is what's happening now, though, with this latest uh, effort on the part of the Pentagon's, particularly the Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks, announcing to a trade group, the National Defense Industrial Association, the Replicator Initiative, where they're just going to swarm China with drones and and robots, of course, running on AI. <laughs> what could go wrong, Bill, with thousands of robotic drones for both air and sea swarming over China, operated by artificial intelligence? Do you foresee a problem there, maybe uh, something getting out of hand? Well, even when humans controlled these high-tech weapons, we had all kinds of issues of killing civilians, of the things malfunctioning, you know, the idea, that, and also Hicks said they were going to produce these things quickly so they could replicate and uh, restock when they, they lost some of them in battle. So it's kind of, I mean, it's provocative, but it, you know, the, the claims she was making are just completely out of line with the last five decades or more of the Pentagon's performance. They're not going to do these things quickly or cheaply. They're not going to work as advertised. So it's kind of the worst of both worlds. I mean, to go in front of the basically the um, head committee of the military industrial complex, make provocative uh, statements about how you're going to win an arms race with China based on new high-tech weapons, and then quite possibly not being able to produce those weapons to do what you claim they can do. It's just, it's, it's just a recipe for disaster. And, of course, China's uh, military posture, they have obviously uh, increased their defense expenditures as their economy has uh, skyrocketed. But it is inherently defensive. And what the United States has, what, 84 military bases around the world? How many military bases around the world does China have? I believe they might have three. It depends how you look at them. So so that they're not, they're not seeking to be a global military power unlike what a lot of the China hawks would try to have us believe. So your suggestion in your article at Tom Dispatch, Will the Pentagon's Techno-Fantasies Pave the Way for War with China? And, of course, techno-fantasies have, have seduced President Clinton and President Obama. He had Eric Schmidt from Google, the number one visitor to the White House during his tenure, and they've sort of fallen in love with the techno-utopianism coming from Silicon Valley. And it looks as if the Pentagon has now fallen in love with Silicon Valley. And you've got people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk in on the, on the latest racket, which is the digital military-industrial complex. So is this uh, the way it's going to be, that you'll have 
people like Elon Musk and uh, Peter Thiel getting rich, uh, but we don't necessarily know what the products uh, will be like and uh, whether they'll work and uh, whether they'll, in fact, be too provocative. Yeah, well, there's probably going to be a scramble. Um, you know, the big contractors like Lockheed Martin are not very good at developing new systems. They're good at buying influence with Congress and so forth and making things they've made before uh, or buying up little companies that have actually produced something. Um, so the big contractors are going to try to control their turf, which is these older generation weapons. Then there'll be these startup companies that the Pentagon and venture capital are funding trying to get some of this new, uh, you know, tech weapon money. So there could be a bit of an internal battle within the military industry. And also the Pentagon, although it's talking quite a big game now, it's still, it might be spending 10 or $15 billion on this stuff compared to an $800 billion budget. So, you know, I think Kathleen Hicks was kind of getting ahead of herself a little bit and, and touting, um, how these things were going to be game changers. And she even gave a little part of her speech about how Chinese leaders were going to wake up every morning and say, oh, well, you know, they've got drones. I'm not going to mess with them this, you know, today. So it was it was really quite a bizarre speech in that regard. Mm-hmm. Well, your article suggests that there are far better ways to deal with China. One is development of the global south. Two, addressing climate change, working with the, Ch- the Chinese on that renegotiating global trade and economics rules, which would go a long way, particularly in terms of the neighborhood, which is, after all, what Obama was trying to do with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That would make a huge difference. And negotiating global trade and economic rules, as I mentioned, and reforming international institutions to create a more open and inclusive world order. We actually don't know, because China, the Chinese Communist Party is a black box, we don't even know what's going on there. But what we do know is that the foreign minister and the defense minister have disappeared. Can you imagine that happening here in the United States? So maybe things aren't quite as together in China as, uh, as we think they are. Maybe there are ways to, non-military ways to deal with China, because I don't think the aspiration for democracy in that country have, all, have been extinguished, as Xi Jinping is has tried to do. Yes. Well, I think, you know, one thing that happens is, um, you know, people who advocate for an arms race with China and for reestablishing U.S. military dominance over China, cite all of China's flaws and crimes, be it how they treated the Uyghurs, what they did in Hong Kong, their internal repression of their own people. All these things are horrible things uh, and should be opposed on some level. But the idea that building bunch of high-tech weapons and more aircraft carriers and more nuclear weapons is somehow going to change China's behavior in these other areas is a pipe dream. Uh, in fact, it probably could contribute to making some of those problems worse because um, they would have sort of the big enemy to point to to distract from their own behavior. So, um, you know, it, it's you're right. China is, is very hard to read. Um, you know, on the one hand, in some periods in our history, I would have been glad if the Secretary of Defense disappeared. But um, as a you know realistic practical matter, obviously, uh, we'd like to know more about what a country's doing if there's going to be some constructive interaction. Right. Well, I think the other theater, though, where there's a really hot war going on now, uh, Ukraine. I've from the, from day one, I've never understood whether or not the U.S. really wants to win that war in the sense that I think the only thing that makes any sense is for a defeat of the Russians so that you could have some kind of sanity return to Russia itself because Putin is turning Russia into a garrison state like North Korea. And on the other hand, on the U.S. side, they have withheld weapons for you know, and then say, "Oh, you can't have these we- missiles. You can't have these tanks. You can't have these planes." Then months later, they finally deliver them, and they've given the Russians time to build up these formidable defenses. So this all leads me to suspect that there really is something else going on here. That they don't really want to win a war. That they want to sort of come up with some kind of stalemate 
with Russia to make NATO relevant again. So we'll es essentially, when you talk about an arms race with China, I think what's more likely is that there's going to be an arms race in Europe where NATO is just going to have to beef up. Russia will be, they already are, mobilizing their military industrial base and calling up reinforcements. And it's all good for Lockheed Martin because they're, they're dumping all these F-16s on Ukraine and then they're going to replace those F-16s with F-35s the countries like Denmark and the Netherlands, etc. And an F-35, of course, costs $80 million to produce and 44000 an hour to fly. So that's the bonanza that I see. Do, do you agree with any of that? Well, I think there is. I think the Biden administration truly is concerned that if they escalate the war and, and push Russia into a corner, that there's a risk of nuclear escalation. Um, I think some of the weapons they've withheld uh, might not make a big difference in any case, given how long it takes to train and use that, you know, in the short term anyway. Um, but I, I do agree that the industry is seizing on this conflict and exploiting it for their own purposes. Um, you know, one is reputational, you know, that they, they went from being the merchants of death to now saying they're the arsenal of democracy. Uh, you know, don't tell the people of Yemen that, but that's their, that's, that's how they're using the Yemen crisis. And then they're also, you know, in addition to getting paid for the weapons that are being supplied, uh, they're capitalizing on increased military spending in Europe. Uh, they're pushing for the Pentagon to supersize the whole military industrial base, saying, well, look, we almost ran out of, uh, you know, artillery and other things, so we have to be ready next time. And, you know, God forbid we had a war with China, we need a bigger... Um, you know, we need to be mobilized for war as this spending close to a trillion dollars is, uh, you know, being done by a bunch of peaceniks. So, you know, I do see this kind of exploitation of the war. I don't know if it's so much a desire not to win as, as the difficulty of Ukraine being able to do that against Russia, you know, a larger uh, country with, with more person power to draw and so forth. Mm. Well, I've certainly been hearing complaints from the Ukrainian side that from the day one that they the stuff that they've been getting, a lot of it's not good and comes late. And it's not as if the United States is fighting the Russians, it's the Ukrainians who are defending their country. But the alternative scenario would seem to be a kind of North and South Korea situation if there's some kind of deal, which I don't think would last because Putin's not going to give up but if there's an interim deal, you'd have a DMZ, wouldn't you, like North and South Korea, and then you'd have a massive, Ukraine would be massively armed, and NATO would, particularly the frontier states, the Baltics and Poland, they'll increase their military spending enormously, and NATO will too. So do you accept the notion that there's a likelihood of a, a, a new arms race in Europe? Well, some of it's already happening. Um you know, the U.S., uh, the Pentagon puts out these little notices of major arms sales every month or so. And uh, this year, the deals worldwide have been about $87 billion, And almost half of that is just things bought by Poland. Um, now, how Poland's going to pay for this? I mean, the, you know, the, the deals they've uh, gotten into this year are alone, you know, more than twice its annual military budget. So are they going to be subsidized? Are they going to spread it out over years? But but there's already uh, you know, a pretty big influx. Uh, Germany's buying F-35s, which was seemed to be off the cards for years, and now they're spending eight or nine billion to do that. So um, you know, it's already happening. Whether they buy things in a coordinated fashion that actually contributes to some sort of integrated European defense is a different question. Or whether they're just going to buy a bunch of big ticket items and, and still be kind of, you know, separate silos, not really organized as a, uh, you know, as a transnational force. So just in the last couple of minutes, and let's go back to China and your article at Tom Dispatch, Bill, will the Pentagon's techno fantasies pave the way for a war with China? 
of course there's connections are being made between the Ukraine war and and China particularly over arguments over taking funds away from Ukraine which the Republicans just did and then then lo and behold after McCarthy gets booted out of out of the speakership he goes on the cameras and starts talking about you know the Ukraine situation and that Putin's essentially Hitler the argument is that if you don't stop Putin Hitler in Ukraine then the Chinese are going to be emboldened to take Taiwan what do you think of those arguments I think they're separate situations. Um, you know, Taiwan, obviously for China, is almost an existential resonance because it was, um, you know, where, where the old regime regrouped and, and, you know, kind of saved itself at, during the Chinese Civil War. And even though it's a very different country now, I think in the eyes of the Chinese leadership, you know, they still are very sensitive about the idea of them being independent. Um, but I don't think they could look at what Russia's done and say, oh, yeah, invading Taiwan's going to be a piece of cake. Because Russia has suffered great losses, has not performed particularly well, given the advantages they appeared to have in the first place. And I think the Chinese uh, relationship to Taiwan will pivot in part on what happens in the West. I mean, if if they sort of move away from the one-China policy and start giving a level of political recognition to Taiwan, then I think the dangers of conflict go up. But if they kind of return to the policy that we've had for five decades of, you know, basically the West saying, we're not going to recognize Taiwan as a sovereign state and China saying they would only move towards integration through peaceful means. I think that's the best deal we're going to get. But if you have U.S. politicians going over there and grandstanding and, and you have, you know, generals saying we're going to go to war in two years and, You've got this whole infrastructure in Congress, this committee that's, you know, endlessly broadcasting why we should, uh, you know, stop the Chinese militarily from dominating the world and all that. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the problem is is the interaction between the United States and China and the, the bellicose rhetoric and, and just the state of relations, rather than whether China is taking a peek at what's happening in Ukraine and saying, oh, you know, this is our moment. Well, William Hatanga, thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And we've been speaking with William Hatang, who is a senior researcher at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His books include Prophets of War, that's P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin, and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. And he has an article at Time Dispatch, AI Goes to War, Will the Pentagon's Techno-Fantasies Pave the Way for War with China? We're going to take a restation break and back investigating how lessons from the past can help us save our future on a planet facing a sixth extinction. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Mann, the Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He has received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award in 2002. He was selected by Scientific American as one of the 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And in addition, he contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Prize for Peace, and in 2020 was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. He's the author of numerous books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet, and his latest book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Mann. Oh, thanks, Ian. It's always great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael, and obviously we are in a situation now where many scientists have talked about the fifth extinction. So given the history of, of this planet in terms of extinctions, 
where do we stand? Because you're arguing in your new book that the Earth's past can help us survive the climate crisis. Yeah, and indeed. And in, and in fact, it turns out we're actually in the what some people have termed the sixth uh, major extinction uh, event, that human beings are creating our own geological uh, extinction event. And climate change is, of course, part of that. But we're impacting uh, the environment in many adverse ways. And, and the net effect is a, a threat uh, to us and to other living things. And the purpose of our fragile moment was really to sort of look to the past, to look back at some of these natural extinction events and see what we can learn from them, particularly with regard to the threat of human-caused climate change. One of those events, for example, uh, has the title The Great Dying. It happened 250 million years ago at the end of the Permian period. 90% of all uh, life on Earth perished uh, in that event. 96% of all marine organisms perished. And we know that one of the primary causes was a massive input of carbon dioxide, obviously not from fossil fuels back then, but from uh, an episode of extreme uh, volcanism that pumped huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now, we call that uh, rapid, but it was at least 100 times slower than the warming that we're creating today. And there are some analogies, some attributes of that extinction event that do serve as a cautionary tale. It was driven by carbon dioxide uh, and the warming from that carbon dioxide, just like today. Uh, There was widespread ocean acidification, uh, just like there is today. But there were some other sort of very unusual attributes that probably don't have any counterpart today. In fact, one of my uh, colleagues, a former colleague at Penn State, Lee Kump, um, sort of established the fact that there appears to have been a global stink bomb. And what that means is if you ever experienced a stink bomb, it's hydrogen sulfide, it's the same smell given off by rotten eggs, and a decrease, fairly substantial decrease in oxygen levels caused deoxygenation of the oceans, which allowed for the sulfur-producing bacteria to fill up the ocean with hydrogen sulfide, and it nearly snuffed out all of the ocean life. We're not due for anything like that. Uh, We're not creating conditions that would lead to something like that. So the the great dying is an absolute worst-case scenario. It's not something that we're likely to create through climate change, but the reality is that it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, an extinction event of that magnitude to, to have an extremely detrimental impact on us and our planet. And, and that is the direction we're headed. If we continue to warm up the planet, we will exceed, you know, our own adaptive capacity and other living things will exceed their adaptive capacity if we continue on the course that we're on and we don't stop the source of this problem or ongoing fossil fuel burning. But Michael, has there ever been any in the history of this planet the rise in the ocean like we are now threatened with from climate change because once the ocean rises i can't imagine how you could ever make the ocean recede again yeah this is one of the so-called tipping points that we worry about and in in the book i sort of look back over past periods that aren't nearly as distant as the the permian you know we were talking more than you know 200 million years ago um we can look to the more recent past, a a period that was known as the Pliocene, uh, a few million years ago, when we know that uh, the Greenland ice sheet wasn't there, Uh, global sea levels were 10, 20 uh, feet higher than they are today. There's some uncertainty about that. And CO2 levels were about what they are right now. And so that seems to, you know, tell us, it, it, it seems to say that, if we maintain the level of carbon pollution in the atmosphere, even at current levels, um, we could be due for that amount of sea level rise, and that would be catastrophic. We would be talking about you know, tens or possibly hundreds of, of millions of people subject to coastal inundation from, uh, from massive sea level rise. Uh, that you know, depends on, once again, what we choose to do. There's some suggestion when you look at what was happening back then and what's happening today that we're not quite there yet. We maybe have another half a degree or so, uh, a little bit of a margin for error before we commit to the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. And so what it tells us is that we're probably not there yet, but we could be there quite soon, again, if we don't act uh, dramatically. And so... If you look at all of these sort of tales from the past, there's a recurring message here, and it's a a message of urgency 
and agency, which is to say, when we look to the past and we look at what happened, it tells us bad things will happen if we continue down this road, but it also tells us that we're not there yet, that there is agency on our part. If we reduce carbon emissions by 50% this decade, it's an uphill task, but it can be done and reach zero emissions by the middle of the century, we can likely avoid the loss of the Greenland ice sheet, the massive loss of ocean life, all of these bad things that we know happened in the past, we can still avoid if we take action. Well, Michael, you've been sounding the alarm for decades, and more recently the head of the UN has been sounding the alarm. So let's talk about the politics then. Is there anything that makes you optimistic? I mean, one of the most frightening prospects to my mind is the re-election of Donald Trump. I mean, this man is just so ridiculous. I mean, he's anything to do with dealing with global warming and saving the environment, he's against, you know, windmills, uh, solar. He even said the other day, you know, about he'd rather be electrocuted than face a shark. I mean, the weirdest stuff. We know he also told us the best way to treat COVID was to drink bleach and shine a UV light on your body where the sun doesn't (laughs) shine. So, I mean, so the idea that this guy could become president and he's also completely in the thrall of Putin. We don't know exactly what the nature of their relationship is, but yeah. They're, yeah. he's a real Putin bro. Yeah. And Putin sits, sits on, a, on a massive carbon-based yeah. economy, and they'll just pump oil, right. and they, it's massive. Methane leaks all across Russia. So, you know, yeah. the prospect of, that, of those two leaders uh, getting together is just a kiss of death, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, there is a dystopian future that is possible. And, and that's a future where, you know, we reelect, you know, Donald Trump. And it's easy to sort of laugh at some of these comments. And we do, right, because they're just so ridiculous. But they're also extremely pernicious because what he knows is, it, you know, even though he's clumsy in the way that he says it, it's clear what the agenda is. He wants to talk down renewable energy. He wants to talk up fossil fuels. He wants to prop up petrostates. And, and, and he knows what side is, uh, the bread is buttered. He is doing the agenda of polluters, of the fossil fuel industry, of the Koch brothers and the other plutocrats. Um, and yeah, it, he sounds silly when he's doing it, but that's what he's doing. Um, he's trying to justify you know, a policy of climate inaction, of fossil fuel dependence. And, and, and to talk down uh, the uh, viability and the need for a clean energy transition. So if, you know, he's reelected and, and that's our agenda, um, as I've said before, there's really no path to climate stabilization, to climate action, global climate action that doesn't go through uh, democratic governance. If we lose our democracy here in the United States, and that's essentially what would happen, we would become a plutocracy and a autocracy under Trump and, you know, the uh, plutocrats who are basically running the show for him. Uh, If the United States, you know, goes down that path and and we fail to lead on the climate issue, then the rest of the world isn't going to come to the table either. Um, We are the largest legacy polluter on the planet. We've put more carbon pollution into the atmosphere than any other planet. And if we unilaterally withdraw from global climate uh, efforts, then you know the rest of the the rest of the world will follow suit, and so it poses a fundamental threat. Trump, you know, the threat to our democracy, the threat of another Trump presidency, poses a threat to our democracy. But any threat to our democracy is a threat to climate action, and 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 a threat to you know U.S. climate action is a threat to global climate action, and so it really would pose a threat to us and really our planet, our, you know, a thriving, um, you know, livable planet. Uh, if we were to go down that road, that's the urgency. Again, you know, we can't go down that road, but there's the other side of the coin, the agency. Once again, it's up to us. If we turn out in massive numbers, if those who care about climate and democratic governance and all these other things that you would hope most people value, they turn out in large enough numbers, then we take back our government and we elect politicians who will be willing to engage on the climate issue and and these other pressing issues. 
and we move forward. Um, it, it, it's, it's our choice. Um, there are two paths we can follow. One is toward the light and, and one is, uh, is, is, is toward the darkness. And I hope Amer- American people make the right decision in this next election. But in the meantime, you know, even before we turn out and vote, we can be participating in this conversation. We can be putting pressure on our local politicians. We can be talking about the climate issue, making sure other people and other civic institutions and everyone around us talks about this issue so that there is pressure on politicians to, you know, to, to, to act on our behalf rather than serve as a rubber stamp for polluters. And I mentioned earlier about Trump's ties to Putin. He's also very close to Mohammed bin Salman, who sits on the biggest oil deposit on the planet, except perhaps for Venezuela. And already Putin and MBS, because of OPEC Plus, have jacked up the price of oil. And they will do so before the next elections to hurt the American voter in the pocketbook and hopefully sway the election for Trump. So on top of the fact that we need to vote, we have to recognize that they're going to try and yep. stack the deck against us. The fossil fuel companies are going yep. to back Trump to the hilt. So um, doesn't that mean, Michael, that young Americans have got to vote in numbers that's never happened before? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, and that is one of the reasons for optimism. We, we have seen a resurgence among young voters in, in recent years. In the, in the midterm election, they came out in greater numbers than they had before. I think the Gen, you know, Gen Z in particular understands the stakes. I think they get it. You know, there've been, there've been some past times when, uh, you know, there was a lot of cynicism among the youth and you'd hear, uh, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. It doesn't matter if I vote. Um, and some of that was frankly bred by bad actors, you know, on social media, trying to create that sort of apathy and, uh, and, and cynicism, um, you know, cause it works to the favor of uh, the GOP, uh, Trump, and the plutocrats who run the show for them. Um, I am hopeful that Gen Z is, they, they see through it. They, you know, I teach these kids here at the university of Pennsylvania. They're really sharp. They get it. They care about their future. They understand what's at stake. They understand the importance of democratic participation. So I am hopeful, but you know, we can't become compla- uh, complacent either. We have to make sure that we do everything we can to turn out the vote. And you're absolutely right. The bad actors here, the petrostate actors, Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, working together with the GOP, Trump, um, they are going to try to, you know, uh, to sort of poison the well going into this election. I think you're right. They'll try to jack up um, oil uh, prices. You know, there are some tools that the administration has at their disposal. The last time they did that, they tried to do that during the midterm election to help Republicans and uh, the Biden administration, you know, deployed, um, you know, a a release from the Strategic uh, Petroleum Reserve. Uh, It's a limited card that you can play, but there are some cards that they can try to play. Uh, But we have to, you know, you're right. They're going to pull out all of the stops they are going to you know, use all of the tricks in their, you know, in their, in their, uh, in, in their playbook um, to, to try to elect the Republicans, uh, the GOP, uh, Trump. We have, we have to recognize that. We have to oppose their efforts to poison our public discourse. And that's part of why, you know, the media are so important here, independent media, you know, your show, Ian, getting the word out there, making sure people understand what's really going on and and that they understand the stakes. Well, Michael Mann, I'm wondering if there's a a word or two that you can offer our audience here in the Bay Area, why they should get your book and how important it is and, and how important it is as a political tool to motivate the very people we've been talking about, the younger generations of Americans who who face an uncertain future because of climate change. This seems to me to be the moment to get the information you need uh, and that parents could pass these books on to their children and particularly those of voting age. And in general, this is, I think, an imperative and you've done the work. So what's your advice to our audience here in terms of why they need to get your book? Thanks, Ian. Uh, 
Well, you know, I think the message of the book really does speak to the larger challenge that we face right now. You know, our, uh, this fragile moment, our fragile moment is the title of the book. And, and the fragility of that moment, of course, uh, you know, in, in the book, I'm talking about the, the threat of uh, climate change um, and, you know, and it, it, the existential threat that it poses to us if, if we fail to act. But the fragility of this moment is also tied to the larger politics um, at work here and the fact that uh, it's very difficult to see meaningful climate action here in the United States if we don't maintain our democracy um, and we don't participate in the political process. And so I think it speaks to an even larger challenge that we have right now. We are at this pivotal moment um, and, and it is still possible. And that's an important message from the past. When we look at the climate changes of the past, we see some degree of resilience in the earth system. Um, and, 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 and so it tells us that we're not yet, you know, past the, the, the point of no return here. Uh, we can still maintain a livable planet for ourselves, our children and our grandchildren, but that window of opportunity is closing. And that window of opportunity will disappear, uh, obviously, if we don't take action, if we don't vote in politicians who are willing to support the needed action. So it's really all part of the same challenge. And I think people in reading this book will see that, um, that there's a lot of wisdom that we can gain from looking you know, to the past. We've got 4 billion years of history on this planet um, and, and, and it's full of lessons for us, lessons about the climate crisis, but lessons about sort of the fragility of uh, human civilization, our existence on this planet. I think the book speaks to those larger issues as well. And I think that, you know, readers will find it informative and, and, and frankly, uh, as serious as a topic it is, um, there are some fun parts of the book as well. I think there's some uh, stories that people will find fascinating and interesting and, and even a little bit funny. Uh, and so there's some lightness along the way, even though it's a pretty serious topic. Well, Michael Mann, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure to talk with you, my friend. Well, thank you again, Michael. Mann is the Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He's received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award in 2002. He was selected by Scientific American as one of the 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And additionally, he contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2020, he was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences and is the author of numerous books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding the Climate Crisis, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And his latest book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.